Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is guitarist Terence Brewer from his album Groovin' Wes. This is Bumpin' on Sunset. My guest this week is guitarist Terence Brewer. He's got an album out called Groovin' Wes, and it is uh, my distinct pleasure to welcome Terence to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. As I was mentioning to you off air, it's quite a pleasure to, to be a part of this whole process and to be a part of the show. Uh, you've had some great folks on before, and I've enjoyed uh, listening to it and uh, checking out the website, so I'm, I'm very, very happy to be a part of it. Well, now I'm going to have to cross off all the really hardball questions I was going to ask you, and I guess just talk about the music. <laughs> <laughs> so let me take all the scandal questions out here. Just cross those exactly. off. Exactly. So uh, you were born in Oklahoma City, but I know that your musical career uh, really started in Pittsburgh, and not the Pittsburgh that everybody's thinking of right now. Will you talk a little bit about right. those those early days and uh, your your woodwind period, if we can call it that? Right, yeah. I mean, I was born in Oklahoma City, as you mentioned. My dad's from the San Francisco Bay Area, a small town called Pittsburgh, California. In the East Bay, it's about 20 miles outside of uh, Oakland, Berkeley. And we moved back out to Pittsburgh when I was about uh, nine. And when I moved, upon moving out here, got involved with the music program actually late in my elementary school. What would happen is, in this community we grew up in, very heavy, heavily uh, music-influenced uh, like the junior high school band would go to the elementary school and play a concert for the elementary school kids in order to get them to be inspired to be in the, the bands in junior high school, and the high school would do the same thing at the middle school, et cetera. They kind of keep this whole uh, system uh, fueled with kids coming through it. So when I was in fifth grade, I heard the junior high school band come to uh, my school and, and was instantly hooked, you know, just loved whatever it was about the music and my elementary school started offering recorder, and that was the beginning of it. For those of you that don't know, a recorder is a small plastic instrument. It's kind of in the flute family, and but looks sort of like a clarinet. So I started there playing the, playing the recorder. Then when I went to junior high school, I was uh, fortunate enough to go to a, a school and, and be in a school system that uh, we did a ton of music. You know, from, from sixth grade on, I was playing classical music. I was playing jazz. We were, we were listening to Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and, you know, trying our best as, uh, you know, 11, 12, 13-year-olds to replicate what we heard. And I had teachers that were very, very passionate about music. And we went to, you know, 
tournaments and, and state events and festivals and all this kind of stuff and traveled around a little bit uh, to different jazz competitions and classical competitions. And that's what my junior high school and high school career uh, consisted of. And teachers who were really passionate, took some private lessons, but really just a love for the music, and that's where it was fueled. And, and in junior high and high school, I played woodwinds, as you mentioned, um, saxophone, flute, and clarinet, and was really fortunate and loved it. In high school, I was in the marching band and classical, you know, wind on, woodwind ensembles, and a couple jazz bands and jazz small groups. And that was the big foundation of, of the musical start for me. When I was about 14 or 15, sort of like most teenage boys, I fell in love with the guitar, right, because of Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and ACDC. And actually, at the time, you know, all the, all the current rock bands, which was, you know, Soundgarden and Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Guns N' Roses and all these groups, so I fell in love with the guitar. And I was fortunate that I had this, you know, my day was filled with music almost every day. At school, I would play, you know, classical and jazz. Then I'd come home and get to play in the garage, you know, rock and roll with, with my friends. And so after high school, I decided to go to music to uh, go to college for music. And at that time, uh, when I first arrived in college, I, I heard jazz guitar, saw jazz guitar, I should say, more like, uh, for the first time and completely fell in love with it. And that was the start of my career as a transition from a woodwind player to then a classical and jazz guitarist in college, which was a, an interesting transition, but a fun one. And from the moment I, I started playing the guitar in that vein, uh, I fell in love with it, uh, you know, more, much more than I ever had with, with woodwinds. Um, and it just, you know, that continues today. And that's sort of, as they say, the, you know, the, the rest kind of is history in that in that respect. What was it about playing the guitar or seeing jazz guitar right. for that first time that really grabbed you? Well, certainly it was having never, you know, having played the guitar and played rock and roll, attempted to play rock and roll and sort of blues and this kind of stuff, to hear what jazz guitar was, the complexity of it, the beauty of the, of the harmony, the way the instrument sounded, I never knew a guitar could sound like this up until that point. And, you know, it just it really interested me. It just fascinated me that the instrument could sound like that. And I think part, you know, part of it was I had grown, you know, in junior high and in high school, you know, I was surrounded by, you know, most of the woodwind and brass family and, and percussion family. But my exposure to guitar was very limited. And in hearing jazz guitar, it was like this whole other world opened up for me and the possibility to you know, play and be able to play like a saxophone player and play individual single note lines and improvise like a, a horn player, but also to be able to play chords like a piano player was truly, truly fascinating for me. Yeah, you and I are, are just about exactly the same age, and it sounds like we were having similar experiences and listening to a lot of the same bands, too. And those bands, yeah. the, a lot of the bands that you mentioned, the Soundgardens and Nirvanas, they weren't built around the guitar as a solo instrument. They were built around, you know, big power chords and, you know, a lot of kind of uh, fuzz and distortion. So it must right. have been like a whole different sonic world to hear what, you know, you can do with an archtop, for example. It, it was. It was, it was, a, it was a, a very big change for me. And not only that... In the context that I first heard jazz guitar, you know, in college, uh, I heard it in the context of a quintet, you know, piano, guitar, saxophone, bass, drums. And so the guitar was doing lots of things. It was comping and, and playing accompaniment parts. It was playing uh, melody lines. It was also improvising. 
and then that same uh, gentleman who uh, Mike Williams, who was my first uh, jazz guitar instructor, he also did a duet with the saxophone player, and so he was doing uh, the walking bass line stuff, walking bass lines, comping chords, and doing some solo melody pieces. So, you know, all of a sudden in one sitting, you know, it, really my mind was blown as far as what this instrument was was truly capable of, and that's really where the the passion started and, and continues. You know, I think back to that time very fondly, you know, as I practice and perform music today, and I'm I'm still in touch with Mike, uh, and I do concerts for him at, out of the college, you know, once a year or so. And it was truly a magical and very inspirational time for me, and, and it's continued to motivate me all these years down the road. decide that playing the guitar, playing the jazz guitar in particular, was what you wanted uh, to do with your life, and what did you do when you made that decision? Well, interestingly enough, I was, you know, and I tell people this all the time, I, I'm, I feel like I'm one of the most, you know, blessed people in the world. When I was probably 14 or 15, I knew that I wanted to play music for a living. I had no clue what that meant, obviously, <laughs> as a 15-year-old, but I knew that I loved playing music, and I knew that if I could do it for a living, for a profession somehow get paid for it, like people got you know, paid to be a doctor, a lawyer, et cetera. I wanted to do it. And there were a couple things. You know, I had been playing music for six or seven years at that time, uh, but two things sort of happened when I was about 15, 16, actually two um, uh, you know, movie-type events, if you will, really kind of three. One was seeing Bird, uh, the Charlie Parker film was done by Clint Eastwood, and then around the same time seeing Mo Better Blues, which was done by Spike Lee, and also watching, you know, Straight No Chaser, the Thelonious Monk documentary. So those all happened within probably a year, year and a half. So now I was able to see in a visual manner, you know, some of the greats that I've been hearing about, right, in a cinematic form and also in a, in a, in a documentary-type form. And then what Spike Lee did, you know, in Mo' Better Blues really just, you know, captured my imagination in a lot of ways and really continued to fuel this passion of want to, you know, be a professional musician. And a few years later, when I was a senior in high school, I did my first paid gig, and I remember thinking, this is this is pretty cool. <laughs> you know, I ended up doing an end-of-the-year barbecue for one of the teachers at my high school, had a jazz trio that played, we got paid money, we got to eat, and uh, I thought, you know, this is a pretty good way to spend my time. If I can, uh, if I can find a way to practice an instrument, perform for people, and get paid for it, then uh, sign me up. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's been a, a number of years since I last saw Mo Better Blues, but if I remember right. correctly, both Bird and Mo Better Blues are kind of dark pictures of what it's they, like to be a musician. 
They they are, but I think you know, and well, watching it as a you know what I remember and sort of what I keyed in on, you know, as a fifteen or sixteen year old is much different than you know the things I take away as a as a thirty three year old. But you're right, and I think some of the dark things went over my head, you know, in Bird, some of the the, the Charlie Parker addiction things, and the way you know Clint Eastwood you know played that out. I think sort of flew past me. But the scenes where they were playing music and all the in Mobile Blues, the great soundtrack with you know Terrence Blanchard and and uh, you know Wynton Marsalis and Branford Marsalis and this great band, you know I listened to that soundtrack over and over again and watched the movie and all the great club scenes and yeah, there was definitely a lot of there was a lot of dark in both those movies, but there was also you know this really cool sort of mystique about you know playing an instrument and you know, making a living at it, and, uh, you know, it really just captured my imagination. So there's not really a, a shortage of guitarists in the jazz world. How, when you decided, okay, I'm going to give my, myself a go at this, how did you right. go about making a, a career for yourself? How did you establish yourself? Plus, you lived in a, you know, a pretty large, or close to a pretty large metropolitan area. How did you decide, here's how I'm going to stake out my piece of ground? From the time I was about you know, 15, 16, 17, once we had friends that had cars, you know, we were coming to Berkeley, you know, just about every opportunity we could, and uh, listening to music and, and putting our ear to the doors of, you know, some places that we couldn't get into that had great jazz and great rock and blues, and so we were doing that early on, and that and that was certainly a, a part of it, you know, soaking it in, you know, I was... Uh, I ended up later becoming friends with Charlie Hunter and studying with him, but I remember going to see him at places when we were 17, 18. Couldn't get in and just standing with our ear pressed to the door, looking in through the window of some of these clubs uh, and, and, and hearing him. And so we were, you know, surrounded by this great, uh, this great wealth of music that was that was here throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. And I just started to do whatever I could. You know, I, I remember being one of the first uh, people that I knew that had a, you know, a promo shot, a headshot, and a, a demo. And literally, it was going around to any place that would have me to play. And so I started out in the beginning, actually, playing a lot of coffee shops and small restaurants and doing a lot of solo guitar and building a, building from there. And then I started to do some you know, local festivals and, and started to get more notoriety and, and more known around the Bay Area and had the chance to you know, meet and play with some you know, great musicians, uh, you know, P.S. Escovito and uh, Khalil Shaheed and Ed Kelly and, and just Bay Area and sort of, you know, international icons and started to soak it up and, and, and from the beginning just started to pound the pavement and put my name out there and, and see what could happen. Was that a, a great uh, repertoire building exercise, doing all those solo coffee shop gigs and that kind of thing? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's, for me, I, I still pull on, you know, pull on that resource for knowing jazz standards because that's how I learned a lot of jazz standards was, you know, hours of sitting playing solo guitar, and it was it was a tremendous experience. And playing solo guitar is one of the most difficult things you can do, and doing it as you know someone who was uh, still in just the real early conceptual stages of playing the instrument helped me learn a lot about myself and and grow in the music and understand the complexity of the of the music, and it allowed me to you know get paid to practice ideas as well and sort of workshop ideas in front of a crowd. It was a, yeah, it was a tremendous experience. Was there a, a particular moment for you or kind of a series of moments or a decision that you made that took your career from that place closer to where it is now? Absolutely. And, you know, it was in 2000, 
2004 and then 2005 when I started the record label. I have a record label called Strong Brew Music, and essentially it came about because, you know, as an idealistic sort of, you know, late teenager going, you know, high school and college, you know, I assumed, like most players, hey, if I'm good enough, you know, Blue Note or Columbia or Verve or someone will come knocking on my door and, you know, I'll get, maybe I'll get a record contract and I'll get to, you know, tour and play and make records and, and I was playing throughout the Bay Area and doing well, you know, making a living at it and playing festivals and having a great time and playing shows. And But the recognition sort of on a national level and on a greater level throughout the San Francisco Bay Area wasn't really coming. And I wasn't getting signed to the record contract. And as a composer, I had about 100 tunes that I had in my, my book that I would play, at, you know, at shows and concerts. And so selfishly, I decided to start a record label basically so that I could put out my own music and started to do research about how that process, you know, would work and started laying the groundwork to start the record label. And I did, and, and then in 2005, I, I put out my first record, The Calling Volume 1 and The Calling Volume 2 at the same time, two albums of all original material. And the Bay Area Press, the San Francisco Bay Area Press, really, really responded to it, and they loved it, and I started to get, you know, written about and the San Francisco Chronicle and Oakland Tribune, lots of papers, and I started doing you know, radio interviews and TV interviews. And then instantly, so well, as they say, not so overnight, but kind of overnight, in a way, my visibility throughout the Bay Area and then subsequently nationally was elevated. You know, a national publication started to write about those first two records. And it was a tremendous shift for me in, as far as visibility was concerned throughout the jazz community. There were lots of people who knew of me throughout the Bay Area, but now I was reaching a much further and much uh, much broader uh, demographic of, of jazz listener and non-jazz listener, as a matter of fact. So that was the huge, the biggest defining moment uh, in in my career as a musician so far. You know, starting your own record label and then putting out two CDs at the same time of all original right. music is a pretty gutsy move. Was it was it financially difficult? Well, yes and no. I mean, I had been saving, you know, and I had been planning for it. I, I put together, and I was, you know, doing all right as far as working around here, around the Bay Area, playing music. But, yeah, I, I saved every penny I could to, to make it happen. The other thing, part of it is that, you know, in hindsight, I would I would never put out two records at the same time again. <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit crazy, <laughs> but at the time, I didn't know any better. I had no frame of reference to go from, and... But it ended up being one of the best things I could have done in a lot of ways. I mean, that alone created a, a lot of buzz, just people you know, thinking that that was a really strange and odd thing to do. So that in and of itself created a tremendous amount of curiosity about me and the record label and the music I was putting out. And then the fact that I put out two all-original projects, but then when people would hear the projects, they, would, they thought, man, these are really, you know, they come from a jazz voice they come from a jazz tradition and they could re they could relate to them so it wasn't as if i was putting out you know albums of original music that was you know so avant-garde or so you know from a from a place where that the not only the average jazz fan but the average non-jazz fan could, could grasp it they you know people were able to really kind of sink their teeth into it and and they liked what they heard so for me it became a, a huge advantage Thank you. 
There are so many West Montgomery tribute records. What did you think that you could bring to the table? Well, it was actually the weird thing is I actually didn't even I didn't really approach it from that perspective. I put out the uh, volume one, volume two, and then in 2008 I put out Quintessential, and it was another all original music project, different lineup, slightly different configuration. So now I had three projects of all original material, and Quintessential did really well on the national jazz charts. But, you know, the weird, the weird thing about it was I, as I was doing interviews throughout the Bay Area and then throughout the country, you know, people would say, oh, we've got three records of yours now of original material. We really want to hear you do something. You know, do you play standards? And I'd say, yeah, I play standards just about every night because that's what you do sort of, you know, when you're uh, playing clubs and restaurants and, and touring and doing that sort of thing. And so when I, when I was thinking about putting out another project, I knew I wanted it to be a project of standards. For me, it made the most sense if I was going to do a first project of, of jazz standards to do an album paying tribute to Wes Montgomery, who really set the standard for modern jazz guitar and really is an icon in the jazz world, but also in the non-jazz world for people who just, I mean, you could go up to people who aren't quote-unquote jazz fans, and most of them, a lot of them, have heard of Wes Montgomery. And he had a lot of crossover appeal, obviously, at points in his career, but he's also revered as a as a straight ahead uh, jazz guitarist and, and a you know a purist from the jazz guitar tradition. So to me, I, I approached putting out the next record more from a I wanted to do a standards project, and if I was going to do a first standards project, I had to pay homage to Wes Montgomery. Then beyond that, to sort of you know answer your question a little bit more, I I didn't really want because when you put out a standards record, I think you can either go about it from a, a straight-ahead standpoint where you're you know, pretty much doing the tunes and, and showcasing sort of how you approach them, but from a, a head-on perspective. Or you can be sort of very avant-garde and maybe do different time signatures or you know, really reharmonize things and uh, you know, you know, try to make them not as they were in their original forms. And I wanted to approach it from just a straight-up kind of performance record. Will Blades, who plays Hammond B3 on the record, is phenomenal. I mean, he's a great, great organ player and is, you know, a, a great band leader in his own respect. And and Micah McLean, who's on the record, who plays drums for me, is on drum, you know, plays drums on two of my other albums. And I work with those guys a lot. And so I wanted to just go into the studio, do some West tunes, do some standards that I associate with West Montgomery, and just play and see what we came up with. And uh, you know, we had a lot of fun doing it, and, and people are seeming to respond very well to it. How do you avoid, though, it's got to be a bit of a minefield. I mean, you're playing with a guitar-organ-drums trio, you play the electric guitar, you're playing tunes associated with one of the most famous electric guitarists in the history of the music. How do you, how do you navigate through that and come out sounding like yourself on the other side? Right. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I actually, I, on the, the album cover, I actually put a little, a little quote that, of myself and I was talking to someone about the project, and I basically said, you know, I'm not trying to imitate 
Wes Montgomery. You know, I, I'm trying to pay tribute to him with my own voice. And then I ended up putting that on the album cover because I knew people would instantly say, oh, Wes Montgomery tribute album. And then they would look to hear things that sounded like Wes Montgomery. The reality is there are people out there who want to imitate Wes Montgomery. There are people who want to sound just like Wes Montgomery, but I'm not trying to sound like Wes Montgomery. I love his records. I listen to him all the time. I transcribe tons of his tunes, and he's a huge influence on me. But I, I really want to just sound like myself eventually, whatever that is. So in putting out this record, I didn't do the songs exactly the way Wes did them. I didn't try to copy any of Wes's licks and throw those in there. You know, I did his tunes, and I did, you know, I arranged them in my way, and I did some other standards and arranged them the way I like to play them and just let it be a, a, as a tribute as opposed to an, an imitation of what he did. And it, it is tricky because people do want to compare you when, you when you put yourself in that situation. But I think putting the quote on the album cover diffused things a little bit to begin. And then when you listen to the songs, you know, hopefully you hear the spirit of Wes Montgomery, but someone who's not trying to copy what he did and copy his sound exactly. Yeah, and in some ways, I'm I'm setting you up to just let you explain because you it doesn't sound like a West Montgomery clone. So I don't right, I don't mean right. in my questions or anything to suggest that, but you know it's worth people I think getting a chance to hear, you know how you approach material that's so that's so iconic. Um, and it's a very and it's a fair and it's a very fair question too. I mean it makes it makes complete sense. You know that when you see West Montgomery tribute, you think oh, and you think you may start to hear some of that coming through. And no, it's it's a completely fair question and and. Part of it is I didn't really think about it in the sense, you know, I didn't, I didn't really care whether people, because I knew people would draw comparisons no matter what, so I didn't really care. And I said, hey, I'm just going to play some tunes and, uh, that Wes wrote and some other tunes I associate with him and, and uh, let it come out. And I think in the end it'll, it'll sound more like me than Wes. As we're speaking right now, this hasn't happened yet, but it will have happened by the time people hear this interview, and that is uh, your performance at the Monterey Jazz Festival. First of all, congratulations. That's very cool. And tell us uh, how that, that came about. Well, I've, I've known um, the, the people at the Monterey Jazz Festival for a few years now. You know, Growing up in the Bay Area and performing throughout the Bay Area, and you know, Monterey is just about an hour and a half, two-hour drive from where we are here in San Francisco Bay Area. And, and Monterey Jazz Festival being the institution that it is, I've had a chance to run in, into those folks over the years. And so every year, you know, when I put out an album or every other year, I, you know, I submit my uh, my CD and press kit like everybody else. And, you know, I'd never really heard anything back. I mean, I know that they received the information. I think they liked the projects that happened before. But it was interesting when I got the call this time to this year to be a part of the Monterey Jazz Festival, one of the things that, the gentleman said was that he really liked the record. So, you know, sometimes you can never tell what what inspires people to, to book you at, at festivals, but they definitely liked what I did in paying tribute to Wes Montgomery, and they liked that sound, and I think it really fit with what they were trying to do this year. And for me, you know, I'm just I'm thrilled and honored to be a part of it. Obviously, that's a, you know, 52 years of one of the greatest jazz festivals in the world, if not the greatest, and such a tremendous artist lineup over those years. So we're, I'm really, really happy to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, it also helps that, you know, Will Blage is on the album is, um, you know, really a rising star in the San Francisco Bay Area as well. And, and I think people really just responded to what we did, uh, what we've done on the record. 
Well, that's really great. Uh, the album is called Groovin' Wes. It is uh, the fourth release on Strong Brew Music, which is a label uh, owned and operated by Terrence Brewer, who's my guest. And uh, Terrence, uh, really dig the record and the three that preceded it, and uh, I'm really glad that you were on the show, and I hope you'll come back in the future. It was again. It was my pleasure, and anytime you'd, uh, you you want to have me back, I'd love to be a part of it. You know what what you're doing as far as exposing people who already know about jazz to new artists, and exposing people who don't know about jazz to you know the jazz family is tremendous. And we definitely need more people like that. So I'm I'm you know thrilled to be a part of this whole thing, and uh, yeah, much continued success to you, and hopefully we can do it again soon. That's guitarist Terrence Brewer from his album Groovin' Wes. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up for it at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed The Jazz Session's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License. Thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.